Good morning. It's warm in here anyway. Beautiful spring day outside. The past few weeks, we've been looking at one of the first letters that Paul wrote. He wrote several letters. Some of them are in the Bible. Some of them are not. But he wrote a lot of letters to first century groups of believers called churches by us. Paul loved, though, the fellowship of Christ followers in the bustling metropolis of Thessalonica, where he wrote one of his first letters that we've been looking at. And these folks were serious. One of the reasons he was crazy about them is they were serious about forsaking a former way of life. A lot of them were from Greek culture. And they were trying to embrace wholeheartedly a completely new way of living for them, displaying their love for Jesus and for their new fellowship to the culture around them by the way they lived their lives. Last week, Lee covered a portion of Paul's letter that called for a radical change in those folks' behavior back then that God was asking and expecting them to make in the area of sexual purity. The culture of first century Thessalonica was as sexually depraved probably as 21st century American culture, maybe even more. The Christian code of conduct, though, then, in the first century, and now in the 21st century, has not changed. It's still the same. It was then, it is now. God's standard is sexual relations only between a man and a woman joined in covenant marriage. Anything else was a deviation from God's standard and is called by all the Old and New Testament writers by one name, sexual immorality. It brought heartache, Even those polygamists back there in the Old Testament read their stories. It brought heartache then. It brings heartache now. It brought relational strife then and now. It also brought the judgment of God here on earth and later on those who continued in that pattern of living when they were warned of it as the Thessalonians were and as you and I have been as Christ followers then and now. Okay, enough about that topic. That was last week. This week, we're going to look at two other aspects of the Christian ethos. The first one is in our mantra we express here at New Heights. It was one of Jesus' two primary commandments that he said all of the truths of Scripture hung on two simple thoughts that were relational thoughts, love God and love people. It's the love people thought. It's loving others what we like to say in tangible ways. There's only four verses I've got to cover. Two of them are about that. The second one, though, is something we have not talked about a lot here at New Heights, sadly. Uh, Lee and I were confronted by a member of the church a few weeks ago, and we realized that member was right. We'd been hearing groundswells of this for a while, and that we needed to change that. So you're going to hear more and more in the future about this aspect of the Christian ethos. It's called working hard to earn income and support your family while centering yourself in Christ, and in this case, in this passage today, minding your own business. Or Jonathan Nallen, one of our members, will come up and stress a little later a theology of work, and he's going to tell you that your sphere of influence is where you're supposed to center your attention. In this case, when Paul says, mind your own business, he's saying, stay in your sphere of influence, Jim, and don't be going over here in somebody else's sphere of influence and meddling and telling them what to do. you got enough to manage yourself. So with that background in mind, open your Bibles if you have one or look on the screen or on your phone or your Bible app to 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 through 12 is a simple little passage. Let me begin by reading it. 
Now, about brotherly love, Paul says, we do not need to write to you. We, meaning he and Silas and Timothy, the three of them. He's writing this letter for the, th- for the three of them. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. Paul didn't have a lot of time to spend with these folks. They didn't have the old, whole Old Testament as a backdrop. Most of them were not from Jewish traditions. And so how did they learn this information from God? Verse 8 is the, he, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit had taught them, apparently independent of Paul's teaching to them, other than he'd modeled some of these things, but not this brother to love piece. Apparently, they hadn't got a lot of teaching on that, but they were excelling in it. Now, about brotherly love, we don't need to write you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Apparently, they had a reputation for not only loving the fellowship of Christ in Thessalonica well, but in their whole region, apparently, they would send money out as a tangible expression of their love for people, Christ followers, in other towns and villages in what is now modern-day Greece. And he said, you've got a reputation for this, yet we urge you, brothers, to do so more and more. What he's saying to us is, Jim, you can't love people too much. You just can't. Because it's my ethos, and I want you to love people more and more. I want you to become, Jim, even at 66 years old, less critical of other people in more loving, intangible ways. That's what he's saying to the community of faith in Thessalonica. That's what he's saying to New Heights Church in the 21st century. And then he switches topics. Two more verses. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. I know what some of you just did. Hey, he's talking now to people like Lee and Jim that talk too much. Not what it means, sorry. We may talk too much, and that's a whole other subject. There's a lot of verses on that, but that's not what it means here. When it says lead a quiet life, it doesn't mean don't talk a lot. The word means to a centered life, a confident life, a life that goes about your daily activities centered in Christ. A settled spirit is the best way to say this. To mind your own business, there it is, literally was, the idea is, Jonathan will expound on this, stay in your sphere of influence and realize that God has given you a sphere of influence and you will be accountable for that asset of life. See, influence is one of the raw materials of life. And we'll be accountable someday of how we exerted and exercised that influence as we went about our work, as we went about our plays, we went about doing family business. And to work with your hands. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Greek culture back then. The Greeks were the intellects of the Roman Empire. They were the heady guys and gals. You know, Plato, Socrates, that's where all, all the Greek philosophers, when Paul goes to Athens, he makes allusion to that when he tries to relate to them. They look down on ordinary work. That's not Jewish culture at all. Even the aristocratic Jews taught their sons a trade, a la Paul. Paul's a Roman citizen. He was trained, literally. He's a heavy-duty intellect. He was trained under the leading Jewish scholar of his day, Gamaliel. He probably spoke three to five languages fluently. This guy is no lightweight, yet... He's been trained to work with his hands to make tents, to make a living for himself. He was trained as a young boy to do that. But to the Greeks, not so much. That's kind of like, eh, it's better to just sit around and, you know, philosophize. 
And so Paul knows that about them. There are other reasons he may be saying this. So we'll look at that in just a few minutes. But apparently they had a problem with this. So he's going to write again in his second letter to them, same thing except more verses about this. And the hands thing, most work back then was done with your hands. That's not the primary emphasis, but it is part of the emphasis, work with your hands. Just as we told you, so that your daily life may do two things. It may reflect the ethos of heaven. God's a worker. Jonathan will expand on that in a little bit. And we're expected to be worker bees. And we'll reflect a good, strong work ethic to the culture around you. People won't look down on you, call you lazy. Spiritual busybodies is a term he's going to use in another passage. So that you will not be dependent on anybody. That's another thought. We're supposed to earn our bread, earn a living, help support the family, contribute to the family income and work, whether we're working at home or out in the marketplace. And we're also supposed to have to give to those in need around us. So just basic stuff. More comments on the passage. We talk a lot at New Heights about ways to love each other tangibly, such as sacrificial giving, respecting each other in our conversation, putting up with one another, forgiving one another, praying for each other, meeting each other's legitimate needs. So again, I'm not going to say much more about that topic this morning. We address it a lot. Obviously, uh, one more statement, John 13, 34 through 35. A body of believers and you as an individual are supposed to be known primarily for what? According to Jesus on the last night of his life, the way we love one another. So that's supposed to be the hallmark of any community of faith. And, and, and I'm not God, <laughs> I know, and, and I'm not necessarily into grading but if I were to grade this congregation, this church, it's not our biggest problem area, this idea of loving one another. We try to do a good job. Maybe you could do better than that, and I certainly could. We're supposed to do more and more. But we're trying hard in this area. But this next area, I want you to think of the possibility of not performing up to your abilities at work or having a bad attitude at work as a possible sin issue because that's the way Paul addresses it. Apparently, one of the sin issues in the church at Thessalonica was lack of a strong work ethic among some of the believers. Some of the commentators, in fact, most of them, it was related to their belief that the Lord was coming back soon so they could just run around being spiritual and not have to work because, you know, it was about over. Why invest in the world? And we know that the Greek culture has already said, look down on working with hands. They thought it was demeaning. But again, in both letters to the Thessalonians, Paul fusses at them, telling them to work, go to work, work hard. In his second letter, he even encourages a mild form of church discipline called shunning for people who were lazy and didn't want to work. Turn with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 through 15. Paul says this. He starts this one out a little different. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you. Ooh, a little more strength. Brothers, to keep away from every brother who's idle. He's going to open this way. He's going to close this way. And does not live according to the teachings you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day. By the way, that's more than eight hours if you don't do math. Laboring and toiling so that we would not be a burden to any of you. 
he's going to go on to say, we had a right to receive food from you and you support us. He says that throughout scripture. You ought to support Christian workers. But at times, in some places, he wouldn't work and live off the support of other people. But in other places like Thessalonica, where he probably knew that it had a problem with a work ethic, he's going to model a strong work ethic for them. We did this not because we did not have the right to such help, but in order to make ourselves a model for you to follow. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. This is another form of church discipline, starvation. If a man will not work, he shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle. They're not busy. They are busy bodies. In other words, they're just kind of meddling around. And this is where most commentators think they're talking about spiritual busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down. Again, there's that centeredness thought, that quietness of spirit. To just settle down and earn the bread you eat. Just in other words, go to work. <laughs> and as for you, brothers, never tire of doing what my mother told me a lot and I told my kids a lot going out the door most days of their lives. Just do right. <laughs> you know what to do, just do it. And then he says again, if anyone doesn't obey our instructions, this letter take special note of him. Don't associate with him in order that he or she might feel ashamed. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. That's a kind form of church discipline he's encouraging. Again, we've not talked a lot about the high value of work, both in the eyes of God and as a testimony of those inside and outside the body of Christ. And we're going to do that this morning. I've asked a friend of mine, Jonathan Allen, one of our global workers, who spent a lot of time, Jonathan head this way, dedicated to this topic, learning and teaching about it, to come and share with us a biblical theology of work. Morning, church. Y'all staying warm in this lovely spring we're having? It was snowing on me when I got out of the house this morning. <clears throat> All right. Well, today we get to talk about theology of work, which is where my passion really lies. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um, we're going to try to do that quick because we've got a lot of fun stuff to cover in this service. So this may be new for a few of you guys, but hang with me because we're going we're gonna to hit a heavy concept really quick. And we're going to try to do it line by line, build a, a clear theology of work. And I call it basically what you do from nine to five. And the thing with, the thing with um, our understanding of work is that we separate it from our understanding of identity. And we struggle in the day-to-day as believers because we seem to lack purpose. You go to work, nine to five, you're hating life. (laughs) You're sitting there. For me, it's when I talk about hating life, it's working on Excel. You give me half a day with Excel, it's equivalent to hell. So it's why it rhymes for a reason. But um, it happens and you're like, how could this, is this punishment? Did I sin? What happened? Why? You know, a lot of times that's our view of our vocation that we're involved in. And you're like, man, I don't understand. So we're going to create a quick theology of work today or a vocation. And we're going to see where our purpose is rooted in, in our identity. So we're going to go all the way to the beginning, back to the beginning of scripture, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you don't know that scripture, you really should read that one. It's good. And then Genesis 1.28, we're going to make the leap to where Adam and Eve come on the scene. 
God blessed them and said to them, we're going to pause in this part of the scripture in 128. God blessed them and said to them, what was God doing at that point? God was commissioning Adam and Eve. So we're familiar with the Great Commission by and large, most of us, especially in this church. New Heights is great at that. Um, But there's an original commission. And it's the very first one that's mentioned in scripture where God did something specifically with Adam and Eve. He gave them authority by blessing them. So he says, I bless you. I commission you. And then he gave them a job. (laughs) He gave them authority over something. And it was to be his covenant agents or his regents, his rulers over creation. So then we make the jump further in 128. He says to them, gives them their job description. So lo and behold, they got a job. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So Adam and Eve, right out of the gate, they get a job description. God immediately gave them a sphere of influence, a sphere of responsibility. But he didn't just tell them to do something. He had commissioned them and given them the authority to do it. So God doesn't tell us to do something we don't have the ability to do. So he gave them the authority and ability to accomplish their mission. In the context of original design, here's the context of our purpose, where our life flows from. God designed creation to require mankind to exercise authority and responsibility. So by design, creation requires your participation. And your participation looks like work. Not necessarily everyone's job looks the same or your sphere of influence looks the same, but we are all required to work and not to be miserable in our work. So in Genesis 2.19, we see this launch of the idea of co-laboring with God. So by design, God initiates our involvement in his creation as co-laboring. He says, out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the sky, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. When whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. So, by design, God left things unfinished. He left things for you and I to do. He started with Adam and Eve as an example, but it continues to this day. Especially under the new covenant when you've been recommissioned with authority and power to also accomplish that. So, what are some of the things that God left unfinished by design? Multiplication of people. That was one thing mentioned. Subjugation of the earth ruling over creation, and naming the animals, which is always my favorite because I think if I'd let my little boy name the animals, it would be a very different world right now. (laughs) So he's a little guy. But God went with it because he wanted to model this co-laboring, this participation of his creation of mankind in ruling and reigning over what he had created. So this is where we come to the point of understanding work, a true theology of work. In Genesis 2.15, we get... Um, we get the clear commission. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it, to keep it. Though Now the word cultivate is uh, sometimes translated work, but that's what the word literally means. But in, in the ancient Hebrew, the word ab- is abad in the original text, and it means cultivate, tend, serve, or worship. So it's a multifaceted word that alludes to a deep meaning for work. Yes, it's easily translated work, and that's what Adam was up to, but what else was going on? The implications of this is that work was established by God as the means by which his creation would be governed by man. So work was the method from the very beginning. 
Work was before the fall, not a result of the fall. This is the one that nobody really remembers, especially if you don't like your job. You're like, what did I do to get here? (laughs) Something happened along the journey of my life, and I've been condemned to this. Or you just think that work is something you got to get through nine to five so you can do other stuff. But it's not a result of the fall. It was God's original design. All of mankind is called in some form to work or to have a vocation. That's by our original design. And obedience to that call is an act of worship. Just like any form of obedience, anything you do in obeying God is an act of worship. And work is worship. The word abad even translates as worship. So the the next best uh, extraction from that, from work, is worship. It's the same word. Okay, now let's talk about where the rubber meets the road, so to speak. How do we get to um, what we're supposed to be doing now? We need to understand this term metrons. Now, metrons is basically means a sphere of influence, or to you comic book geeks, you might recognize something else from that, from other uh, old school comic book uh, series, but we won't go there. That's another discussion. So metrons, legitimate ancient Hebrew, or I'm sorry, ancient Greek word, and Paul brings this to the forefront when he talks about and introduces the idea of spheres, spheres of influence. In 2 Corinthians, he says, but we will not boast beyond our measure, but within the measure of the sphere. When he says the word sphere, that's the original word metron, which God apportioned to us as a measure to reach even as far as you. So Paul and his team, they understood that they had an area, they had an area of responsibility that God had given them in which they were to work. And they weren't going beyond that. They knew their boundaries as well. This definition actually brings a lot of security in our life when we understand what God has called us to. We don't feel compelled to try to figure out our purpose in life. It's, it roots and balances our life. Now, in this idea of metron or sphere of influence, a definition I like to use to, uh, for sphere of influence is a construct made up of ideas, beliefs, practices, and people in society under the responsibility of human beings. That's really all it is. So within that, everyone has a metron. Everyone has a sphere of responsibility. It doesn't matter if you have a sphere of responsibility over a traditional job environment. You might be a single mom with a little girl, and that little girl that you're taking care of even prevents you from having a normal job, but that is your metron. That is your sphere of responsibility to manage that metron, manage that sphere of responsibility because that metron is your garden. It's the same commission that Adam had at the very beginning to manage his garden. You also have a garden. Everyone has a garden. It doesn't matter how old you are, if you work for a corporation or you work for your mom in the kitchen at home. Everybody's got a metron and everybody starts somewhere with that. So within your sphere of responsibility and your Um, you're essentially a gardener. I like to mention that. If you don't like gardening, get over it. It's okay. Your commission is the same as God's, or same as God gave to Adam. And you may not have a traditional job, but that doesn't mean that you've escaped the implications of a metron, of a sphere of responsibility. You're called to work. Attend to your business, 1 Thessalonians 4.11 said. You could sum that up as saying, cultivate your metron. Attend to your business. What's the business God has given you? What are the boundaries within which you are responsible? Your metron is a garden. Your commission is the same as what God gave to Adam. And abad means to tend your garden, to manage your metron. 
Okay, we're going to compare some ideas here. So that's the fundamentals of the theology of work. Now we're going to look at how work is viewed around the world because this makes and breaks nations. You guys, I've worked in about 60 countries, every imaginable context of ministry, cultural stuff, and everything comes down to this, the view of work. So let's look at this view of work discussion. I've extracted some points I want to share with you. Um, originally by Daryl Miller, who was a disciple of Francis Schaeffer's at the Labrie Institute in uh, Switzerland. Some really good compare and contrast here. So we're going to start out with the first one. Animistic worldview of work basically means work is a necessary evil. Now, as we go over those, over these uh, illustrations, try to find yourself, see yourself in this matrix of where you land on this, this kind of gauge of worldview of work, because we're aiming towards something here. So um, animistic worldview of work. Well, I grew up outside the U.S. in a third world country. This was the worldview of work that I grew up around. So some of the highlights of this worldview, the animistic worldview sees work as what one does to survive. It is usually seen as a necessary evil. This concept is often found among people who live at or below the poverty line. It is a basic feature of most animistic cultures. Okay, let's look at the next one, materialistic worldview of work. We basically sum this up as we work to succeed in order to have the good life. This, most of the developed world runs on this operating system. This is what work is about. So some of the highlights, the naturalistic or materialistic worldview sees work as a career, as the backbone of modern society. Work is viewed mainly in economic terms. It is what one does to have things, the good life, etc. Work is, or work in this sense is usually defined by success, upward mobility, affluence, nothing wrong with those things. But as we'll see, this is not what biblical work is. The end result of work is consumption. Basically, you work to buy stuff, work to survive. So that is the materialistic worldview. Okay, now we, inter- we need to interject, before we go on to the next ones, we need to inter- interject a brief look at the word Gnosticism and what Gnostics were. Gnosticism came in early, into the early church, and corrupted a lot of the thinking of the new believers. It continues to this day to corrupt, and particularly in the area of vocation and work. This is where we get the idea of having a sacred, secular, or dualistic worldview. So Gnosticism denigrated vocation and work in Christianity. Gnostics, or let me back up and just define Gnosticism. Gnosticism was perhaps the most dangerous heresy that threatened the early church during the first three centuries, influenced by such philosophers as Plato. Gnosticism is based on two false premises. See if you recognize these premises in our own world. Matter is inherently evil, or things you can touch, the natural, and the spirit is inherently good. Everything in the body has no meaning because only, life really only exists in the spiritual. So this separation of the material and the spiritual, calling one good and one bad. What this has led to is a corruption of the worldview of work within the church. So we call this now evangelical Gnosticism. Let's look at how this first manifests. We call it the spiritual versus secular work worldview. So there's a clear dichotomy, a dualism between some things being spiritual, some things being secular. If the world and secular jobs are seen as evil or bad and one wants to be more spiritual, then he or she goes into full-time Christian service. So a lot of people are trying hard to leave behind the misery that they have at their office that goes do something spiritual. This is defined as pastoring, missions, or other spiritual work. Now, this is a fairly clearly defined 
idea of dualism. You can see that as we talk about it. But the next one gets a little more gray, a little more complicated. Spiritualizing your secular work. Still a division there. Still a dualism. Some Christians who do not want to go into full-time Christian work seek to invest spiritual activity into their workplace, really for the reason of trying to validate it, validate why you're doing this where you're at, why you work for this awful boss, why you have this terrible work environment, why are you still here doing this? And you try to spiritualize it by trying to do spiritual activity. So you use your work environment as a platform. So you try to platform in, okay, I'm going to run Bible studies, I'm going to run prayer groups, I'm going to do, uh, you know, whatever it is, all these good things that are not bad things, they're great things and we should be doing those, but our view of work is still that it's just a platform to do other spiritual things. That moves us on then to the kingdom or the biblical worldview of work. All your work is sacred. It is worship, it is a calling. In and of itself, your work has value. The biblical worldview provides a framework for work being sacred, for labor having dignity. The concept is that it is a vocation. It's your calling. Work is a call of God upon an individual's life. That calling gives value and meaning to what you lay your hands to. Like the Bible says, whatever you do, do as unto the Lord. And as you put your hands to that, that becomes an offering of worship just as much as what we do here on stage or in this room when we sing and worship to God. This is liberating. This adds dignity, value, identity, purpose to everything you do nine to five. Everything you do that you don't want to do. The best worship experiences of my life have come working in the back kitchens of gross restaurants. (laughs) As I worked till midnight in high school, cleaning up. I I was telling my wife the other day, sometimes I was the last one out of these restaurants at midnight or one in the morning. I had great times of worship, worshiping God by doing that as unto the Lord. So your work in and through your metron is how the kingdom of God is established. Colossians 3, 23 through 24 says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward because it's Christ you're serving. So working at it with all your heart, that's where you see the reward. It's not necessarily just about a paycheck uh, you, should, you should be willing to do work without even being paid if you can worship God by doing it. Summing up our ideas here, you are saved to something, not just from something. Yes, you're saved from your sin. You're saved from hell. All these things that are blessed in your life because of coming to Christ, but you're also saved to something. So N.T. Wright says in this excellent book called Surprised by Hope, he says, what you do in the present by painting, preaching, singing, sewing, praying, teaching, building hospitals, digging wells, campaigning for justice, writing poems, caring for the needy, loving your neighbor as yourself, all this will last into God's future. They are part of what we may call building for God's kingdom. Thanks for letting me share with you this morning. Just something I want to say before. Panel, if you all start this way, whoever's bringing those chairs, Kevin, be helpful. I've got a panel coming up, and we're going to just ask them some questions too. But one comment about what Jonathan said, I forgot to say this earlier. Paul knew 
that 99, probably 0.9% of the people in Thessalonica that he was writing that letter to would never be, quote, paid religious professionals. He knew that they would live and die in Thessalonica doing ordinary things. Yet he valued what they were going to do and he wanted them to value it. That's the essence of what we're talking about this morning. Well, we've selected a panel of New Heights members who are not paid religious professionals to share with you how they view their work. So I'm going to introduce them one at a time and ask each one of them questions. So I'll start naturally with the person on my left. This is Dawn Stanford. She and her husband Rodney have two children. Rebecca is a senior at Fayetteville High and Rachel's a ninth grader at Providence Christian Academy. Rodney works in HR at Dayspring Cards, where Don also works at Dayspring Cards as the retail sales business development manager. She's a sales manager, basically. She has a degree from JBU in psychology, and it's invested hundreds of hours in training and leadership in sales. And here's my question. How, Don, do you lead and relate to your sales team that's under you in a way that reflects your values or the ethos of heaven. You can tell us why you're talking, what you like to do too. Absolutely. Well, relationships is what matters most to me and people. People um, are so important. And so encouraging them in their gifts, helping them develop in who God uses the purposes that he's planted in each one of us. Also, just doing everything with excellence. And so I love presenting as well. And thinking about that more of as a conversation as I serve customers, so asking them questions, not about what I can get out of it, but what can I give, and truly listening, finding a need, and filling it. So that's something that's really important. And also just in leadership, I would say serving my team in, in ways if, if thinking I'm never above doing anything and really serving each person on my team, and as God leads me in different places, whether it be actually at my office or I travel quite a bit as well, is who does he bring into my path? And do I have those eyes and ears to hear, God, what do you have for me today? And so it's a lot about dying even to my own agenda. I'm very much a planner. And so it's every day is like, okay, Lord, what do you have for me today? And who are the people um, that you put in my path? I think that's a pretty healthy view of work. Tim, you're next. This is Tim Cook. He's married to Lisa. They have two adult children. Lisa works at the U of A as an events coordinator for the Arkansas Leadership Academy. But Tim is a master craftsman and a cabinet maker for Taylor Custom Cabinets. He started out after high school pursuing an architecture degree and dropped out after a couple of years because he realized his calling, his vocation that Jonathan talked about, was his passion for woodwork. And so he decided he'd live out his passion and work hard at it. And he spent his entire adult life in that craft. Uh, He is a self-confessed perfectionist. And those of you that have used him or seen some of his work will know that. He loves to work with wood, particularly uh, wood that hasn't been painted. And he wants to make it as beautiful as he can. And he's done some of the work uh, in our new offices. But... Tim, I've got a question for you. I know you're familiar with the biblical mandates uh, that Jonathan shared and some of the passages that I've shared, particularly the Colossians passage about do all of our work is unto the Lord and another passage, kind of a scarier passage in Matthew 25 for Jesus 
commends people that work hard and invest the resources he gives them, and he has hard things to say about those that don't. So you're familiar with that. How does all of these Bible teachings factor into your work that you do on a daily basis working for try to please customers that want to buy expensive pieces of work from you? How does that all factor in? It's a big question. Yeah. Um, well, God's always expected us to do our best and give us his best give us our his best offerings to him and so uh, and he's blessed me with the gift to to work with furniture and and that talent so uh it's kind of like the colossians in three and where it says work hard with all your heart and to the lord as if working for him but i work for somebody so he pay <laughs> but he pays me so uh i keep doing that but um so uh I lost my thought. So it's like uh well, working hard was one of the things I heard you say and doing it unto <laughs> the Lord and trying to do the best you can because you know you're held held accountable for it. Yeah. Right. And uh how, how about the say the fruits of the spirit and how does that play out into your relationship with your customers? Yeah, since you know we work most most of our times we at work well so uh, I try to work that in. That's my attitude at work of uh, fruit of the spirits and allow that to. Don't, don't miss what he's saying. It, and uh, Don't miss what he's saying here. What he just said is most of the hours of the days of his life are going to be spent at work. That's his opportunity. And I know he does a great job of that because some of you know him and I know he exhibits that as he goes about work. Is that what you're saying? Yes. All right. Thanks, Tim. I made him get up here. He hates public speaking. So <laughs> thank you, Tim. You're the only one up here that actually works with your hands as the passage is talking about. So it's pretty important you're up here modeling for us what we're supposed to do. All right. This is Tabitha McFadden. She and her husband, Josh, have two children, Dylan that attends Holt Middle School and Thomas that goes to Holcomb Elementary. Josh works. He has a sacred profession. He's an attorney for a Fayetteville law firm. Tabitha has an undergraduate degree in business and master's in leadership and ethics, and she works for an organization called Rev Unit and is the VP of People Operations. That's a mouthful, but what that means is she spends most of the hours of her day interacting with employees doing coaching, personal coaching, and employee development. Tabitha, you prayed a very specific prayer about four years ago, and this is just a warning. You better be careful what you pray because sometimes, well, God will give you exactly what you ask for. In this case, he did. So tell us about that prayer and how it's played out in your job. Thanks, Jim. Um, I want to root what I'm getting ready to say in this, too, and I want to speak to my fellow mamas out there. Um, one of the things I feel like is really important in remembering is I, I've worked full-time. I've worked part-time. I've stayed at home full-time. So I've, I've been on several different, um, uh, you know, journeys in this, um, in this time in my life. And the reality is that no matter which position that God has called you to, there is value and dignity and beauty and worth, uh, no matter what. And any combination of that is important. And so I just want to say that as I'm, as I'm continuing on with my answer here. Um, so, so yes, I was staying at home full time 
and I have two little boys, and so I was taking care of them, and, and they were my sphere of influence as well as we were leading community groups as well through New Heights. And I um, really felt a stirring in my heart around uh, spending time with people of other faiths as well as spending time um, with uh, just people who didn't even know what they believed at all. And um, so I prayed a prayer uh, exactly about that. I said, God, you know, please expand my sphere of influence. And I, at that point, I literally kind of forgot about it, went on with my life, uh, started with RevUnit um, a little bit later. And uh, it's a technology company. And about a year later, as I was digging into uh, the role that I was in and, and having done all that, I just literally felt like um, God brought that prayer back to me. And I looked around and thought, oh my goodness, I'm exactly in the middle of that in my work environment. And so then I felt God saying, okay, now it's time for us to go on a journey together. And um, I'm going to need you to listen well, and I'm going to place your steps along the way. And um, that was scary. Um, and, you know, it was overwhelming, but I agreed to listen. And so I am in a company of 70 people. We have offices in Bentonville, Arkansas, and in Las Vegas. And there is a diversity and complexity to that that is uh, pretty unbelievable <laughs> and really powerful. And so uh, it's just been a journey for me of listening and then, and then obeying. All right. Next up is John Langham. He and his wife, Sarah, have two children, Lillian and Rebecca, that both attend Fayetteville Montessori School. Sarah, his wife, works as a CPA, and John is a licensed architect who has a degree from the U of A, and he oversees their Northwest Arkansas projects for his architecture firm. John, you've always, as you told me, taken your work very, very seriously, but you had a complete paradigm shift in how you viewed your work not too long ago. I want you to tell us about that journey. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, <clears throat> a couple of years ago, I made a kind of a career move, and um, during that time, kind of that time transition, I met with um, a friend of mine who had been very successful at what he did, and uh, really my agenda was talk business, and uh, kind of laid out all the details of, of what I was doing and the move, and, um, you know, upon kind of hearing all that, he says, well, you know, what does this mean for your spiritual life? And I kind of thought, well, gosh, I don't know, you know, I've, I kind of really had more of a, of a, of a worldview of work, you know, you kind of hear work-life balance, and I just kind of thought, well... Those are kind of two different things, right? And um, and so through that, we, we started doing a book together. Uh, it's called The Solomon Syndrome. Um, and um, it, it was just really a transformational time. You know, I, I'd never really even understood that um, that I really even had this view of, of work, that I was really just kind of, you know, I was really working for myself, you know, in my own prestige and my own significance. And um, and, and so really turning that over to God and just, just, you know, just confessing it to God, you know, that was a, that was a huge step, you know, um, and, 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 and then really the second part of that is kind of like what Jonathan talked about with, um, you know, realizing your sphere of influence and that, um, you know, you relate to the people you're around, you know, like Tim's saying, you know, you're, um, you're around those people, you know, almost more than your family. Um, and so, uh, so, so there's, there's, there's really no compartmentalization, you know, I mean, Amen. I mean, I mean, you can't, you can't go to work and think, well, well, I'm at work. I'm, you know, I'm just getting this, getting this task accomplished. You know, I mean, I mean, I mean, those people, they, they know you and, and, and you can't be salt and light to them if, uh, you know, if, 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 if you put that in a box, you know, 
Um, and, and so for me, I think practically it just starts with in the morning, dedicating dedicating that work day to God, you know, and, and praying for praying for the people I was, I'll, I'll come in contact with, and um, you know, and, and just really, you know, just really seeking. Uh, you know, uh, God says, seek first His kingdom, and all these things shall be added as well. But you know, I think the world tells us, you know, focus on the as well. You know, you know, don't seek, you know, don't seek His kingdom, which is really our relationship with Him first. And then the relationships with the people around us, you know, they say, no, you know, you know, go after that as well. You know, these things will be added as well. Um, and so, so, so that was really a, a huge, a huge shift, you know, for me uh, professionally. Thanks. Let's give these guys and gals a hand. All right. Thank you. I want to expound on what they've all said, particularly what. John just said and what Jonathan said that we need to view our life as like a 360 degree circle and that God's supposed to ooze out of our lives in everything we do and say that's what Colossians 3 23 and 24 is saying whatever Jim does whatever you do do it as an offering unto the Lord Jonathan pointed that out that original word for work is tied to worship as if God were your boss and he was there with you. And as John Langham pointed out, center yourself every morning in Christ. Make it your ambition to be centered, to be settled in your life. And as you go about life, yeah, things will knock you off of that, I know. But then recenter ourselves in Christ. And try to listen to the Holy Spirit, as Tabitha pointed out in her presentation, or answers to the questions. We always remind ourselves daily. Whether we're homeschooling our children, cooking a meal, traveling all week all over the country for an employer, hosting a small group, leading a Bible study, cleaning your house, playing golf, going fishing, attending an exercise class, coaching t-ball, working out at the club, washing your clothes, preaching, teaching in public school, working on your computer, going to class, or hiking a trail. Three things. That whatever we do, wherever we are, whoever we're relating to, we're supposed to bring the kingdom come with us. We bring the kingdom. That's what we're supposed to do. Into that place, into that relationship, by the way we live our lives, by the way we speak, the way we think, the way we interact with other people. We're on display at all times, as I always like to remind myself, it is a powerful, scary thought. Here's the expectation of you and me. Living icons of Jesus Christ in our culture to those around us. This is worse. When we walk into a room, it's not worse, it's profound, it's powerful, but it's scary. When we walk into a room, the manifest presence of the spirit of the living God is supposed to be walking into the room because we're there. The atmosphere is supposed to change for the good because you're present in the room. We're called to live, as Jack Hayford said, a crucified and disciplined lifestyle. Bearing witness, whether at work or play, to a supernatural Christian worldview. That doesn't mean we're religious all the time. It's supposed to naturally flow out of us. Living all of life again, work and play, as unto the Lord. That's the essence of the talk this morning. 
The prayer team will come on up now. We'll do what we do every week here at New Heights. Scatter out around the room. If you want to be prayed for, go find a member of the prayer team. Go to someone else in the room. Or if you want to pray for someone, a total stranger, you have the freedom to do it here this morning. Communion's available around the room. We take the wafer, we drink the juice, as symbols of God's broken body and his blood spilled. He said to do it as a remembrance of what he has done for you and I. The early Christians took it every week. So we offer it to you every week. Confess your sins. I encourage you to do that before you go. But remember as you take it that he died for you. And if you've never made a decision to commit your life to this Jesus Christ, the real historical figure who was died and resurrected to pay a cosmic penalty for your sins, go see a member of the prayer team. Pray that this morning. And if you've never been baptized by immersion as Christ commanded and he modeled, there's a baptistry up here. Yes, it's a gym and yes, it's a dunk tank, but it's okay. They baptized in puddles of water back then. We'll baptize you this morning in obedience to the commands of Christ. All that's available in this gym this morning. And also, we're going to stand right now and engage God verbally and with your body in public displays of affection for the one true God. So let's do that right now as we corporately worship together.